Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, A Desert Experience, with a message titled, The Battle is His. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus 17, verses 8 to 16, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I grew up in a Mennonite home, and I say that to indicate that I grew up, especially with a father, who strongly believed in the principles of pacifism. He thought all war was evil, and as I grew in my knowledge of Scripture, I must say, I don't agree with the position of my late father, but that doesn't mean I don't respect the position. I respect the position because of the emphasis on loving one's enemies and doing good to those who misuse you. And I respect the position because war is an easy answer to conflict between people, whereas understanding and seeking peaceful ways to resolve disputes really should be a model for everyone, and especially in our day when the technology of weaponry has become so sophisticated that we can kill vast numbers of people in the blink of an eye, and the necessity of finding peaceful resolutions to disputes is ever greater. My father was not a liberal pacifist. My father was a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, gospel-believing pacifist who thought his only hope for eternity rested in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Again, let me say it again, that even though I don't think that one consistently can hold the position of pacifism in the light of biblical revelation, I do think one should listen to the position. I mean, consider the opposite. Christians who very quickly talk of God and military might, who dehumanize their enemies and have no difficulty calling for war. Now, the heart of Christ is to be a peacemaker, not a war maker. Look, I think nations have a right to build a reasonable military defense of their land, and they have a right to defend their land from evildoers. All it takes for evil to flourish is for good men to do nothing. And furthermore, evil doesn't understand reason, it understands power. But I'm not here to discuss patriotism or how much money a nation should spend on defense or foreign policy for that matter. In fact, I don't even want to discuss the theory of what would constitute a just war. I want to discuss the first battle that Israel ever fought. Yep, there were many more to come. The wars under Joshua, the wars under King David, the wars in the First Testament are many. And each war really does deserve a study in its own right. But this first war, and the one we're going to study today, really does set the stage for all the wars that follow. So much can be learned from the first war that Israel fought. So let's start with the very first verse in our text, and that's Exodus 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Israel is still at Rephidim. That's the place where God miraculously brought water from a rock so that the entire nation and their cattle could drink. And it's here where war broke out with a nation called Amalek. So let's start by asking who they were. Well, according to Genesis 36, verse 12, Amalek was a grandson of Esau, the twin brother of Jacob. And so because the two nations are related, you'd think there'd be understanding between them. But we know that the descendants of Amalek, they became a nomadic group, and part of their wealth was derived from the practice of developing an able and effective military in which they would attack any vulnerable population group they found and plunder their wealth. And they became quite prosperous doing that. Indeed, because so much of their economy was built on that practice, they would have had to develop a warrior culture 
with a very well-equipped military that was able to hit another people group very hard and then inflict maximum damage, killing many, stealing wealth, and then be gone. That made reprisals against them extremely difficult. You know, in Numbers 24, verse 20, Balaam, you remember he's the prophet for hire, and he called Amalek the first among the nations. He's probably referring to the nation's power in the desert regions, that is, no one could withstand them. So what led to this war? Well, no doubt Amalek became aware that Israel had plundered the Egyptians when they left Egypt. And hence, they knew there's wealth there. And furthermore, Israel's wandering in the wilderness far from any population center. And so to strike Israel hard would have been a rather easy thing. No one would help them. No one would intervene. And furthermore, this was a nation who had just come out of slavery and would have been ill-equipped to defend themselves. And all of that is behind that very simple statement in verse 8 that Amalek came and fought with Israel. This first war of Israel was one of pure self-defense. It was just for Israel to defend their lives and the lives of their wives and families, as well as their nation and the ability to go to the promised land. So let's go to Exodus 17, verse 9. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now this is the first time in the Bible that the name Joshua comes up. And as we know, there's an entire book named after this man, Joshua. He becomes the leader of Israel after Moses dies. And, and Joshua, as we should know, is known for his successful military campaign in the promised land. Well, where does he come from? We know that several chapters after this one, we get to Exodus chapter 24, verse 13, he is called Moses' assistant. On that occasion, he goes with Moses onto Mount Sinai. And we also know that when the 12 spies are sent to spy out the promised land, that Joshua is one of those, and he comes from the tribe of Ephraim. On that occasion, only he and Caleb are faithful to the Lord, while the other 10 spies fail to trust God. And all that to say, that Joshua was among the most faithful men of God from the younger generation. And we know that very early on, he's known for his fighting skills and his ability to take leadership in forming military units. And as the Amalekites are seen to be moving into the area, Moses knows that there's no escaping this conflict. War is imminent. Indeed, from verse 9, we find out from the time the Amalekites arrive to the time when war is engaged, well, it's only one single day. And so there's precious time to get ready. And Moses tells Joshua to choose men. And if you use the NIV version, it says, choose some men. But the word some is unwarranted in the text. It's not that Joshua can choose some of the many military men that are available to him. I mean, he doesn't have the luxury of a large standing army in which he can simply choose several regiments and put others on standby. Rather, Joshua's got a challenge find men who can fight. Well, now, how many weapons are available? Well, the Bible never tells us. When Israel came out of Egypt, they did plunder the Egyptians, and we have to imagine that the plunder must have included some weapons. I don't think that they were in the wilderness long enough to manufacture any. I do think it is possible that if there had been roving traders in the area, that they might have purchased some, but it wouldn't have been a lot. See, we can't estimate how large a cache of military equipment is available to Joshua, but we do know that it has been less than three months since Israel has come out of Egypt. 
Since Israel is a slave nation, we've got to imagine that the Egyptians wouldn't have been keen to allow military training among the slaves. And so it needs to be said that although Joshua is given the task to find every able person with a weapon available and to quickly form them into a military unit, the matter of time, that is one day, and the matter of efficiency of the Amalekite raiding army must have made it seem that the battle had been lost before it started. But Moses adds an important element. He says he's going to stand on the top of the hill some high place. He's going to go there with a staff of God in his hands. And of course, that was the staff that was held out over Egypt when Egypt was destroyed. See, I'm reminded here, many years in the future, to the time when David faced off with Goliath. Goliath was a man of war, and David, the young man, had no military experience apart from fighting a lion and a bear. And for that reason, I've always loved what David said to Goliath just prior to that battle. I'm quoting 1 Samuel 17, 46 to 47. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know, listen to this, that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give it into your hand. So that's an important line. The battle is the Lord's. That is, it's God's fight. It's God's battle. That theme is repeated elsewhere. Deuteronomy 20, verse 1, listen to Moses' instruction as Israel goes out to war. He says, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Don't be afraid, says Moses, of overwhelming odds. Instead, count on God. Indeed, when Moses would give rules for warfare to future kings, listen to what he said, Deuteronomy 17, verse 16. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. So God commanded Israel to have an army and he commanded them to defend themselves, but he forbade them from becoming too powerful. They needed to remember that they were to rely on God and not on military might. Have you ever wanted to spend time in fellowship with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, or even the leadership team behind them? Well, this is your chance. We invite you to join us on a cruise from April 5th to the 14th of 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. The beautiful scenery combined with the Bible teaching of Dr. John, spiritual encouragement of Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, and feature musical guests is a recipe for the vacation of a lifetime. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. So for more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca Call us at 1-800-663-2425 and please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by participants. The point of all Israel's battles is so that they might remember that which David would say, the battle belongs to the Lord. Or Psalm 20, verse 7. 
Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And Israel's first battle, as was to be the lesson in all of her battles, is that she was never to trust in the strength of her military, but rather to trust that the greatest warrior is not the strong man or his military hardware, but the Lord is a great warrior. Trust in him. And that's the lesson Israel needed to learn in her first battle. The battle is not one with overwhelming military superiority. I mean, how else could they think differently? After all, the only reason they were no longer slaves in Egypt is because God had fought for them. There's another important item to add here before we get back to her account with a fight against Amalek. And that's found in Exodus 13, 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Now, please don't feel embarrassed by asking, you know, why Israel needed to face war at all. I mean, why couldn't God simply have, you know, placed the plagues of Egypt on all Israel's enemies so that no battles needed to ensue? I mean, if Moses in our text, that is in Exodus 17 verse 9, is going to go to the top of a hill with a staff of God in his hand, why doesn't he just summon a plague of hail? You know, the one, you know, where fire was mixed with the hail and have that fall on the Amalekites. I mean, after all, God can do that. And yet he tells Joshua to quickly put together an army and go to war. So why is that? Well, clearly the answer is that God wanted his people to fight. He didn't want a self-indulgent people. He wanted a people who had to pay the price to obtain that which they could not get in their own strength. Let me put it in contemporary terms. When parents do everything for their children and never teach their children the virtues of sacrifice and hard work, the struggle, if they take that away from their kids, they create monsters. Children who become adults who are unable to achieve anything are children who were raised with everything given to them. Well, there are other answers as well in terms of warfare. Warfare would teach Israel what was at stake. It taught them about the power of evil. It taught them what should occur if they submitted to evil. It would eventually lead the way to great spiritual conflict that exists in the heavenlies. Satan and his demons are locked in battle against the purposes of God. Nothing like warfare to teach how horrible evil is. No, no. Joshua and Israel needed to learn to fight. So do we. I don't mean that we need to physically fight. But as Joshua and Israel would learn, the battle is too large to win on your own. You need the Lord to fight for you. Otherwise, you're ruined. So we come to Exodus 17, 10 to 13. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hands, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now, just before we deal with the main item, you're going to have noticed that we read about a man we've not heard before, and his name is Her. So, who is he? Well, we don't have any details. I mean, Josephus, the Jewish historian, the man who lived right after Jesus, well, he thought that Her was the husband of Miriam, the sister of Moses. Now, of course, we don't know that, but we do know that when Moses went up Mount Sinai, and he took Joshua up with him, at least part of the way, Moses left Aaron and Hur in charge of caring for the nation while they were gone. So whoever Hur was, 
He was surely a leading elder in Israel. And in this case, that is, in the case of the warfare with Amalek, he's called upon to go with Moses as Moses appeals to God. Now to the main issue in our passage. Joshua is on the desert floor. He's engaged in war. Moses is on the hill. He's holding up his hands. The battle clearly isn't over immediately. The war is hard. It's hotly contested. The Amalekites are used to war, and they have come for plunder, and they aren't going to quickly turn tail and run. They'll fight until they get victory. But for Joshua, much more is at stake. He's fighting for his nation, his wife, his children, and the war lasts all day. That's a long time for Moses to hold his hands in the air. And and God so ordains matters that whenever Moses' hands are raised down on the field of battle, Joshua is pressing forward. But when sheer weariness of the weight of upstretched arms overwhelms Moses and he has to lower his arms, the tide of battle shifts. Joshua is now hard-pressed. He's he's on his heels, and he's in danger of being overwhelmed. And so this is the seesaw battle that carries on all day. And so Aaron and her are pressed into action. They're going to aid Moses. They're going to hold up his hands and even have Moses sit on a stone. And so under these conditions, with divine aid, the battle rages on until evening. But by evening, the outcome's plain. Amalek has been defeated. Israel under Joshua has prevailed. Indeed, the text says Joshua overwhelmed them. So I take that to mean that that Israel broke through the ranks of Amalek, leaving them without recourse. Amalek fled the field of battle, having suffered significant losses and having gained no booty or no plunder. It was a complete loss. And so Israel's first war has ended. So what's the purpose of the drama with the raised arms? Well, I think it takes very little insight to see it. It means the battle is the Lord's. Unless he's aiding Israel, no one's going to the promised land. But if God fights for them, no weapon formed against Israel will stand. In all the stories of Israel's battles that follow, that's going to be the theme. When Israel rebels against God, they fail. When they're faithful to God and they repent of their sins and they determine to follow his commands and to trust in him, they succeed. The battle is always the Lord's. But our account's still not done. We come now to Exodus 17, 14 to 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now here we have insight. Moses is to record these events. The battle against Amalek is written down. Successive generations would read about it. Something else was to be reported. God would blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And I understand that to mean that God will destroy Amalek as a nation so that they would cease to exist. And furthermore, those words, the utter destruction of Amalek, were not only to be written down by Moses, they were to be recited into the ears of Joshua. When Joshua went into the promised land, that was to be part of his mentality. I know that's a huge subject matter. And behind that is the ethics upon which the entire book of Joshua is built. I mean, how can Joshua utterly destroy nations? And that subject matter is important. I know I can't fully discuss it here, but remember that in the time of Abraham, God tells Abraham he wouldn't give the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants because, in God's words, the sins of the Amorite is not yet full. That is, a gracious and compassionate God was determined to give time and room for those nations to repent. 
But when their sins reached a crescendo, then came Judgment Day. The story of Israel taking the promised land is not just a story of God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. It's also a story of God's judgment falling upon a deeply evil and immoral culture. Joshua becomes the instrument of God's vengeance. And that was not just true of the Canaanites. It was also true in the time of Jeremiah the prophet, when the punishment turned around and God used the Babylonians to punish Israel. See, I hope you see, Joshua was not set upon an innocent people. He was set upon a people who were violent, brutal, and who lacked all bounds of decency. Now then, it was not until David's time that Amalek was completely destroyed, but the lessons to be learned by any culture. Reading this, these are weighty lessons. When evil overflows its bounds, the one who sits in heaven does not sit idly by. What's the end of the matter? Moses built an altar there, an altar of remembrance. The altar has a name, Yahweh Nissi, the Lord is my banner. It means the Lord is my signal pole, or the Lord is the signal that armies would raise to rally their forces or to give instruction to their forces while on the battlefield. Any army that's instructed by the Lord wins the day. That's what the altar said. In short, the lesson is clear. No matter the struggle, no matter how large are the forces arrayed against you, look to your signal pole, your banner, and overcome. But if you will not, if you go on your own strength, eventually the Lord will turn against you and that nation will ultimately perish. There's a lot to think about. Thanks so much, John. You know, given what you've shared today, do you think in our generation we can confuse our signal pole with patriotism? Yeah, such a good question. I I think... I have my own feelings about patriotism, and I suppose it's how we define that. I would argue that we should be thankful for a country. We should uh, look to bring benefit to our country. But we should not think that our country is a representation of righteousness. Only God is righteous. Our country is not. And this is not, we don't live in a holy nation. We live in a secular nation. So recognize your country for what it is. Uh, Be thankful for it. But never say, you know, for instance, my country, right or wrong. Just no Christian should ever say that. A God is right. I follow him. I have no other gods but him. I, I submit only to him in the end, even while I seek to do good to my land. Um, that's the kind of patriotism that I feel comfortable with. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A Desert Experience, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Jesus has entrusted his followers with the sacred mission to make disciples of all nations. Together we share this duty to shepherd the millions of lost souls to the saving truths found in God's word. But in order to effectively disciple hearts into a dynamic relationship with the Lord, we need to be well equipped to evangelize the unsaved. It's not just about knowing how to share our faith, but being ready to share it when the opportunity comes. This is why Back to the Bible Canada is pleased to offer a booklet called Before You Share Your Faith by Matt Smethurst. This resource guides us through five crucial elements 
that will give us the tools to be evangelism ready. So request your free copy today by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.